Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. Shout it aloud. Do not hold back. Raise your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their rebellion and to the house of Jacob their sins. For day after day they seek me out. They seem eager to know my ways as if they were a nation that does what is right and has not forsaken the commandments of its God. They ask me for just decisions and seem eager for God to come near them. Why have we fasted, they say, and you have not seen it? Why have we humbled ourselves and you have not noticed? Yet on the day of your fasting, you do as you please and exploit all your workers. Your fasting ends in quarreling and strife and in striking each other with wicked fists. You cannot fast as you do today and expect your voice to be heard on high. Is this the kind of fast I have chosen? Only a day for a man to humble himself? Is it only for bowing one's head like a reed and for lying in sackcloth and ashes? Is that what you call a fast, a day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen? To loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter? When you see the naked to clothe him and not turn away from your own flesh and blood, then your light will break forth like the dawn and your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help and he will say, here am I. If you do away with the yoke of oppression, with the pointing finger and malicious talk, and if you spend yourselves on behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will rise in the darkness and your night will become like the noonday. The Lord will guide you always He will satisfy your needs in a sun-scorched land and will strengthen your frame. You will be like a well-watered garden, like a spring whose waters never fail. Your people will rebuild the ancient ruins and will raise up the age-old foundations. You will be called repairer of broken walls, restorer of streets with dwellings. If you keep your feet from breaking the Sabbath, and from doing as you please on my holy day. If you call the Sabbath a delight and the Lord's holy day honourable, and if you honour it by not going your own way and not doing as you please or speaking idle words, then you will find joy in the Lord and I will cause you to ride on the heights of the land and to feast on the inheritance of your father Jacob. The mouth of the Lord has spoken. Father, as we come now to your word, to hear it preached. We pray that your spirit would be at work among us, uh, that we might hear your voice, and that you would speak to us with clarity. Give us ears to hear aright. And I pray, Father, we pray together that you would uh, speak words that challenge us, and words that excite us. Uh, that we might uh, all together take up this call to make you known 
and to live our whole lives for your glory, that our light might shine in the darkness of this world. In Jesus' name and for his glory, amen. Now let me ask you a question. Are you fulfilled? Uh, Maybe when you think about the mix of study or work, of home, of leisure, what does it all add up to? Is it a fulfilling life? Is it a full life? You think, you think of yourself as living a full and a rich life. Maybe it'll help to think of it like this. Are you left wanting more? Uh, you know, you, you tell how, if, if, if you're asking how, how full is a glass of water, well, you do that by measuring the distance between the water and the rim. Well, if we measured the distance between your life and what you aspire to, what's, what's the difference? Are you left feeling empty or lost or dissatisfied? I wonder if you've come this evening feeling a little bit fed up with God. You know, you, you do your bit for God, after all, here you are, but he's not delivering, he's not satisfying you. He's not giving you the life you want. Not making you feel fulfilled. That's pretty much the complaint of the people in Isaiah 58. The people of Israel are seeking God. They're fasting. They're making sacrifices for him. What could be wrong with that? And yet even as they kind of come together to make this sort of noise of worship, God has to raise his voice above it. Do you know what that in verse 1? Shout it aloud, he says to Isaiah. Do not hold back. Raise your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their rebellion. So what's the problem? Well, let's look at verse 2. For day after day they seek me out. They seem eager to know my ways as if they were a nation that does what is right and has not forsaken the commands of its God. They ask me for just decisions and seem eager to have God near them. In in the original, the verse begins with the word me. It's kind of emphatic. Me they seek. In effect, me they seek even though they've turned from me. That's the kind of irony that God wants to bring out here. Me they seek, the one they've turned away from. And the word, it's hard to take, but the word commands and the word decisions are the same word. In effect, what they ask God for judgments when actually they've forsaken God's judgments. They're a bit like a child throwing food on the floor and then asking for more. Some of you may know that experience. Some of you may have, may have experienced that today. And then in verses three and four, they expect their voice to be heard by God. And yet the irony again is that God is having to raise his voice to be heard by them. The problem is not that God cannot hear. He sees and hears all too well. The problem is the people are not hearing God. They're not listening to his voice. Their hearts and their lives are divided. Verse 3, on the day of your fasting, you do as you please and exploit all your workers. Or verse 4, you cannot fast as you do today and expect your voice to be heard on high. Their religion may be earnest, but it's divorced from the rest of their lives. Even as they pray, they exploit their workers. 
And they don't recognize the discrepancy. But you can't separate commitment to God from commitment to people. You can't divorce love for God from love for others. I think it's significant that fasting is singled out. You know, obviously fasting is to go without food. But the, actually what's going on is they have, they're living lives that are full of greed and indulgence. They've made commercial activity and economic gain the center of their lives. And it's actually idolatrous. They really only, they're really only turning to God because they want, him to kind of, they want to kind of co-opt him to their personal project of economic gain. He's just a kind of another lever to pull. Another option to try in the pursuit of wealth. What about you? Are you living a divided life? What's the gap between Sunday, Sunday evening and Monday morning for you? Are your priorities the same on a Sunday evening as they are on a Sunday morning? Or perhaps I should put it the other way around. Are they the same on a Sunday morning as they are uh, on a Monday morning as they are on a Sunday evening? Is your conduct the same in the workplace, in the lecture room, as it is here this evening? Are your values the same? Is the worth you give to Christ when you sing, his praises here, is that reflected in your bank statement? Do you treat people, particularly those in need, in a way that matches your professed love for God? I think the gap between Sunday evening and Monday morning will be a measure of how divided our hearts are. Maybe that you're a regular churchgoer. And maybe you have come frustrated with God because you have this kind of view that there's a kind of contract going on, a deal. You do your bit, he does your bit, but, but you're ne- you've never really let God be God. You've never really fallen in love with his grace, with his love. What is it then that God requires of his people? Well, verse 5 says, Is this the kind of fast I have chosen? Only a day for people to humble themselves? Only a day. That's the problem. Their religion is something you put on kind of only for a day. One day of the week. Like someone putting on their Sunday best so they can appear good before God. Only a day. It's as if they've put God in a box marked Sunday. But then in verses 6 and 7, God sets out his vision of true religion. And what God wants is a life of sacrifice. Not a day, a life. Look at how verse 7 begins. Is this not the kind of fasting I have chosen? Is it not to share your food with the hungry? So the people commit to a day of fasting. You know, this moment when they give up food. What God calls them to is a whole life of sharing their food. That's the fasting, that's the going without food, as it were, that God requires to give up your food for others, to share it with those in need. And not just your food. Again, look at verse 7. Here's a call to give up your food, to share your food with the hungry, your home, to provide the poor wanderer with shelter, your clothes, when you see the naked, to clothe them. And then it ends with these words, and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood. 
I wonder how you might do that. You see someone in need and turn away. And you see a television news report and switch over. And again, notice that God is not just concerned with those immediate needs, but with the whole person. He calls on us to address the underlying causes of poverty. Again, verse 7, it calls us to feed the hungry. But verse 6 is, is this not the kind of fasting I've chosen? To loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke. To set the oppressed free and break every yoke. So not just making the odd charitable donation. It's no good doing that if we earn our living through injustice or prosper from oppression. We need to address poverty and the causes of poverty. So this chapter is a call away from a divided life towards a whole life of worship, of service, of mission, of love. A few years ago I went to visit a couple called Saul and Pilar Cruz. Uh, who were doing work in the slums of Mexico City. Saul was brought up in a good evangelical church, and Pilar, his wife, wasn't his wife at the time, was converted through a Bible study that he was running. And, uh, and then they started dating. Now, Saul's mother disapproved of Pilar. She, uh, she wore high heels and short skirts, not the way that a good evangelical young lady was supposed to dress. And then after a little while, she stopped coming to church on a Sunday morning. And all Saul's mother's sort of prejudices and fears were confirmed. And so one Sunday, Saul secretly followed Pilar to find out what she was doing on a Sunday morning. And he, she saw her leave her house and take a bus, and a bus that went across into the center of town, and then another bus over to some remote part of the city. And then she arrived at this poor neighborhood where she met this older man, and together on the streets, they got out crayons and, uh, and, and um, uh, paper, and they started running a Sunday school on the pavement for the children of a slum. And then Paul, Saul, uh, Pilar came over to Saul, because of course she wasn't stupid, she knew what, was, she knew what he was doing, he was trying to hide, but you know, she knew what was going on, and said, well, you may as well join in. And then, so he asked her, what's going on? This was her explanation. If Jesus is Savior, then he's the Savior of these people as well, and your church is doing nothing to reach them. And Saul told me with a twinkle in his eye, that's when I knew she was the woman for me. (laughs) A whole life, a divided life to a whole life. And then a whole life becomes a full life. Alongside this radical call to a whole life of service, we have some lovely promises. We're called to a life of sacrifice, but it's not a lesser life. It's not an empty life. It's a life that's rich and full. Indeed, there'll be many times when it doesn't feel like sacrifice at all. This is the good life. This is the full life. Look at verse 9. Then you will call and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help and he will say, here am I. You know, it feels to the people like they're playing hide and seek with God. And they think it's God is the one who's hiding. 
Verse 2, they seem eager for God to come near them. Verse 3, it seems that God has not seen them or noticed them. But it's not God who has moved. It's the people who have moved. God is far from his people, not because he has gone away, but because, says verse 2, because they have forsaken his commands. They're the ones that have gone away. So it's not God who is hiding at all. It's people who are hiding from God. Just like Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Just like today. People demand evidence that God exists. You know, if God exists, why doesn't he show himself more obviously? But in fact, fact, we are the ones who are pushing the evidence of God away. We're the ones evading, trying to avoid the implications of of knowing God and serving God. We're the ones who are hiding. But if you turn to God, then he says, here am I. Here am I. Here am I. I've been here all along. And what you discover is that a life near to God is a whole life. A whole life in another sense, a life that is rich and full, a life of true and lasting fulfillment. Look at verses 10 to 11. If you spend yourself on behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will rise in the darkness and your noon will become, uh, your uh, night will become like the noonday. The Lord will guide you always. He will satisfy your needs in a sun-scorched land. Now the words yourselves there at the beginning of verse 10 and the word needs in verse 10 and in verse 11, actually the same word. I know that's sort of a bit, how does that end up being the same word? But it's basically your whole self. So the argument runs on something like this. If you spend your whole self on behalf of the hungry and satisfy the whole self of the oppressed, verse 11, the Lord will satisfy the whole, your whole self, the whole self of you in a sun-scorched land. If you pour yourself out to satisfy others, to care for the needy, to, to release the oppressed, then God will satisfy you. Do you believe that? It's a really important question. In fact, the whole sermon turns on this question. Because our culture doesn't believe it. Not for a minute. Our culture sees self-denial and self-control as kind of repressive. It values self-fulfillment and self-expression and self-realization. Not spending yourself on behalf of others. And yet Jesus says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves... Take up their cross and follow me. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and the gospel will save it. Or there was a time in the life of Jesus, just before he died in fact, where he washed the feet of his disciples. Now that was the, mo- that was the lowest and most menial act of service. Now, there was no sort of more powerful way of expressing the way that Jesus himself gave his whole self in love for others. And then he sat down, and this is what he said. Now that you know these things, now that I've done, you've seen all this, you will be blessed if you do them. Extraordinary statement. 
If you perform the most menial acts of service for other people, you will be blessed. Blessed. This is the way of blessing. To give your life to serve others. Verse 7 talks about sharing your food with the hungry. We've spotted that already. If you give your food to the needy, what happens? Surely you end up with less food. Well, no. Not according to verse 14. Verse 14 says, if you, if you verse 7, if you, if you share your food with the hungry, what happens? Verse 14, you will feast on the inheritance of your father Jacob. If you give your food for others, you will feast. A day of fasting becomes a life of sharing, becomes a life of fulfillment. A rich and full life. Or, think, or, or, or look at this. Verse, four, uh, verse 3 sorry, says, On the day of your fasting, you do as you please. We get the same little expression in verse 13. The people do as they please on the Sabbath. Now the Sabbath was the day that God had given to his people to protect workers from exploitation. You remember how um, God took Israel out of Egypt where they had been slaves. They had lived this life of slavery and then he brought them, he liberated them. Gave them a new life in a new land. And then he, but he gave them this commandment. One of the commands was... Don't, you know, every, one day a week, everybody should rest. And these people who had been slaves, who had worked relentlessly for others without any rest, suddenly were given this moment of rest each week. But now on their Sabbath, the people do as they please. They exploit their workers. They, they, the kind of roles have got completely reversed. They're like the Egyptians enslaving others. Their only concern is their pleasure. And never mind the cost to other people. And yet their pleasure is elusive. They come to God complaining. They're not satisfied. They live like people in a sun-scorched land. Dry, barren, dead. But if we give ourselves to serve others... Then verse 11 says, the Lord will guide you always. He will satisfy your needs in a sun-scorched land and will strengthen your frame. You'll be like a well-watered garden, like a spring whose waters never fail. Or verse 14, this is how we began this, this our time this evening. Then you will find joy in the Lord. You know, it's, here's a call, pleasure seekers, listen up. Here is true joy. It's found in giving your whole life in the service of God. Whole life, wholehearted life lived for God's glory. And then finally, it turns out that this whole life, which is a fulfilled life, satisfied life, a full life, is also an attractive life. Have a look at verse 8, beginning of verse 8 beginning, uh, end of verse 10. Then your light will break forth like the dawn and your healing will quickly arise. Then your light will rise in the darkness, verse 10, and your night will become like the noonday. Uh, we saw this morning, if you were here with us, that Israel was called to be a light to the nations. And, I, I, and that's a big theme in Isaiah. And here it is again. 
And he's kind of sort of drawing all of this out now for his hearers. Israel were to display God's splendor. They were to show the world that God is love and that his rule is good. And now through the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the true light of the world, God's people can again be a light to the nations. As we live as God's people, as we love one another, as we serve those in need, light will rise in the darkness. In the dark places of this world, light will shine through us. Now, words are vital, central. It's never enough to address, simply address people's felt needs. Felt needs can be a great starting point as you engage with people or as you go to serve Christ around the world. But we need to move beyond felt needs because people don't feel the weight of God's impending judgment, yet that is their greatest need. And the greatest thing that we have to offer is the good news of eternal life through the Lord Jesus Christ. So social action, as with any other ministry, Christian ministry, must have God's word at its center. We must proclaim reconciliation to God through the Lord Jesus Christ. If you don't have that awareness of those eternal needs and of the great good news of the gospel, then then it's so easy to drift away from from doing that evangelism, from proclaiming Christ. And the reason for that is that a community's temporal needs, you know, the, the economic or medical or social needs, they're just they're there in front of your face all the time. They're kind of demanding their your attention. And so often, Christian social action has got distracted into just meeting those needs. When the greatest gift we have to offer is the Lord Jesus Christ. Because he meets the greatest need. Only the message of the gospel can bring eternal life. Social action, as we'll see in a moment, social action can demonstrate the gospel and reinforce the gospel, create opportunities for the gospel. But without words, then social action is like a signpost pointing nowhere. In fact, it's worse than that. It's pointing in the wrong direction because likelihood is what people are going to conclude is you're doing all this good deed so that you can earn your way to heaven. I mean, if you, if you say nothing, that's what they're going to assume because that's what they assume to start with. You're just reinforcing their idea that we have to earn our way to heaven. And so words must be central. The word of Christ, the word of the gospel, the word of grace must be central to our mission. But social action, a whole life, caring for the needs, campaigning for justice, that's a great context for the gospel. Remember how Peter says in 1 Peter 3 that we're to be ready to give a reason for the hope that we have. Kind of assumes people are asking the question, doesn't it? Well, it's as we care for people, the needy. That's, that's one of the great contexts in which people begin to ask that question. Jesus began his ministry with these words, The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. God's kingdom was coming because God's king was coming. Jesus was on the scene. God's kingdom is here. Great. Except that, you know, I'm fairly confident if you go out on the streets of Forward and you say, I've got some great news for you. God is in charge of your life, not you. 
they are not going to think that's good news. Because ever since the Garden of Eden, humanity has assumed that God's rule is bad news. We've believed Satan's lie. Satan portrays God as a tyrant. And we've bought the lie. So we think God's, news, God, God's rule is bad news. That God's a tyrant. His rule, you don't have to read just Genesis 1 and 2, and you see immediately that God's rule is a rule of blessing and freedom and love and justice and peace. It's good news. But people don't see it that way. And so one of our jobs, one of our roles as God's people is to model God's good, liberating, life-giving rule. We're to show that it's good to live under God's authority. We're to show that we, knowing God is good news so that people come and start asking those questions. We're to, we're to show that, not just that people ought to obey God, but that it's good to obey God. That God is a father who loves us and his fatherly authority is good. Now let me highlight one of the implications of this for for mission. Remember, the word must be central, but all of us have a story to tell. All of us can be involved in, in, in proclaiming Christ. You don't have to be a preacher to be involved in mission. All of you can tell what the Lord Jesus Christ is for you and what he has done for you. What this means is is that there are just a a hundred different jobs there to be done in the world of mission. I don't want you to sit there thinking, oh yeah, let's uh, mission, that's that's for preachers. If you look in the sort of vacancy list of any mission agency, you'll see roles for, uh, for medics, for teachers, for carers, for drivers, for logisticians, for, oh, lots of other things that I can't think of, just off the top of my head. I mean, I guarantee that whatever you're training to do if you're a student, whatever you do now if you've got a job, you can do that in the course of mission. You can come and test me afterwards. Come and tell me that your job won't work. I mean, if it's drug dealer, then I'll probably agree with you, but that's, that's, that's not your big issue at this point. There's something for everyone to do. I, uh, a, few, a few years ago, I visited a city in, uh, in the Baltics, which is a Muslim city. There were two Christian couples in the entire city. One of them was from Luton and the husband had been a postman and he'd heard the call to mission and had gone to mission. I feel like, uh, you know, I'm about to say even, even a postman can go and do mission but it's probably very bad. If you're a postman then I apologise for that. I just want to say, you know, this, this is a task for everyone. Not just for sort of theological professionals or clergy. There's something for everyone to do. Someone gave uh, Saul and Pilar Cruz a rubbish tip. Not the most generous present. (laughs) In the middle of a slum area. And on that rubbish tip, they built what they called an urban transformation center called Armenia, Shalom or Peace. And they run homework clubs, mentor youngsters, gave out meals, created new housing. Today there's a thriving church there. Lives are being changed. On one occasion, some professionals 
who came and questioned Armenia and questioned really whether they could bring genuine change to the slums. So Saul invited them to, to talk to any of the children that they wanted. And so they picked this boy because he looked, you know, he looked middle class. He was called Daniel. Daniel was born in one of the slums of Mexico City. His father abandoned their family. His mother turned to drink. To provide for his siblings, Daniel got a job running errands for tradesmen who uh, operated outside uh, Mexico, Mexico City's prisons. So with a little bribe to the guard, Daniel's job was to take stuff in to sell to prisoners inside the prison. In time, Daniel was caught, sent to a young offender's institution. And then when he was released, the judge ordered that he must not live with his mother because his mother was exploiting him to fund her addiction. So he spent a short time with his grandmother, but then he returned to his mother because he wanted to care for his siblings. One day, his brother, who was half blind, was killed in a road accident. So Daniel was just left distraught and suicidal. Saul and Pilar met Daniel at the funeral of his brother. Uh, They brought him back to their center for a meal and then invited him to join the activities of the center. They threatened his mother with legal action if she uh, she didn't stop demanding uh, money from her children. Well, Daniel kind of worked his way through the, through the homework clubs. He was given a scholarship. And in that context of that caring community, he became a Christian. And now he participates. He's one of the leaders in the children's work. I met Daniel at, uh, at the Armenia Youth Club. And a special treat, we had pizza, Domino's pizza. And... Um, you know, how, you know how you sort of say, oh, fast food is the same the world over? I uh, don't believe that, because uh, there was this, the hot and spicy pizza, which I love. I love hot food. Uh, hot and spicy pizza in Mexico is, I mean, dangerous to your health. It's, uh, <laughs> it's, it's a whole other level, even, even Domino's pizza. And I asked them about their dreams. One told me how they hoped a generation touched by the work of Armenia would bring change to the city through the word of God. Another talked of the seed planted in them, driving out the darkness of the slum. Actually, very kind of uh, um, Isaiah 58 language, isn't it? Of the darkness rising, of of the light rising in the darkness. Another one wanted to see families changed through their children. It was so, what was so striking, though, they were not dreams of prosperity. They weren't kind of hoping that they, would, they could escape the slum and live a nice middle-class life. They were hoping that change would come through the Word of God. If we live the gospel and we proclaim the gospel with, with an undivided heart, with our whole life, Then, says Isaiah 58, then your light will break forth like the dawn. Then your light will rise in the darkness. Let me pray. Father God, we thank you for people like Daniel whose lives have been transformed by the love of your people 
and by your word, by the Lord Jesus Christ and all that he has done for us. And we pray for many more, many more Daniels. We pray, I pray for this congregation, uh, for people here, young and old, from all sorts of backgrounds. Pray that uh, we would be captivated by the Lord Jesus Christ, that we would give our whole lives in his service and not kind of measure it out, but pour it out. That we would hear that invitation to a, a rich and a full life, a life lived with you, and that as we love others, as we proclaim the gospel, we pray that light would come in the midst of darkness, that our light would rise, that the kingdom of God would grow, and that the darkness of this world would be transformed. In Jesus' name, amen.